2: Slick Leonard. Bob Leonard of Indiana, quarterback of the champions of the Big Ten. A team man, a clutch performer, and a great outside marksman. Leonard is a star in the great Hoosier tradition. Indiana leads by one point. National champion.
1: The wildly happy Hoosiers of Indiana are America's NCAA champions.
2: NBA star. He was the ultimate competitor. I don't care who he was. He was going to compete every night. ABA Legend. ABA for the year, and for the third time Bobby Leonard's tenure, The Indiana have won it. And now, Naismith Hall of
1: Fame. Fans, let's hear it from Bobby Slick Leonard. From here on out in Bankers Life Fieldhouse, I will be fortunate to have my number in the rafters along with the great Slick Leonard with the letters H-O-F across it.
0: A hard scrabble child of the Depression.
1: Everybody
2: knew the situation, and a lot of people helped. Who helped transform the Hoosier capital. If Slick Leonard did not exist, or if the Simons did not exist, then this arena would not exist, this team would not exist, uh, and we'd all be Colts fans.
1: Bob,
0: we're at 8,028.
2: A man of family and loyalty. A man of spirit and splendor.
1: He did have some ugly clothes, he really did. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> it's
2: the only wardrobe that goodwill wouldn't take.
1: <laughs>
2: A man who defines Hoosier.
1: Indiana Hoosier! If people knew where he came from and the background that he came from and all the obstacles that he had to overcome and to do what he did, and as graciously as he did it and as gracious as he is now, it's probably the greatest c- contribution anybody could do. And uh, I think he-, he should be proud of it. You know, I'm from Indiana. Uh, I love
2: Indiana people. And they've always loved me. You're listening
1: to Setting the Pace, your go-to Pacers podcast. Joining us now on Setting the Pace is Mark Monteith, and I thought there was no one better than to come on and uh, talk about the life of Slick Leonard than Mark Monteith, who's been covering the Pacers for a very long time. So I want to say, first and foremost, Mark, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, Good to be with you, Alex absolutely so let's just kind of start things off i mean most pacer fans are familiar nowadays with with slick leonard as being a radio broadcaster and they they know about his coaching history because of his number being retired in the rafters and making um the hall of fame but let's start back to his childhood can you kind of walk us through the the childhood that that slick leonard had
2: yeah he grew up in terre haute and you know grew up basically poor you know uh his dad was a laborer and uh, moms didn't work back then and uh, he didn't have you know many luxuries that's for sure but he would describe it as a great childhood because he said you could have all kinds of fun without spending any money you know you'd go down to the river and walk around or he he'd he watch the trains come and go um, of course when he got older he began playing basketball but he had a great time just being outdoors around the community and doing stuff, you know, total opposite of what a young kid would be doing today on his phone or computer or whatever, playing video games. So, um, you know, he certainly didn't lack for anything and it actually I think worked to his advantage because he was totally unspoiled. He, uh, -hmm. he was such a humble person, such a down to earth person. And that uh, is because of the way he grew up and, uh, you know, I don't think he had a great relationship with his dad, but certainly did with other people in the family, in the community. And uh, he has fond memories of his upbringing in Terre Haute, despite the fact that they grew up essentially uh, poor.
1: Yeah. And, and so, you know, I, I've been doing some research and reading about him because I'm just so fascinated with the story. And he talks in an article with, with Zach Kiefer on the Indy Star about, you know, learning him to play basketball at Ma Sullivan's house as a teenage boy. And it was a handful of area kids had come home from the war and constructed. Mm-hmm. Um, the one diversion teenage boys craved most in Smallton, Indiana in the 1940s, they they built a basketball hoop. So uh, talk about his, you know, introduction to the game and how it kind of got him from being a factory worker.
2: Yeah, you couldn't, you know, help but be a basketball fan if you were a sports-minded kid growing up in Indiana in the 1940s. You know, the state tournament was a huge deal then. and. And certainly in Terre Haute, you know, there were great players coming out of Terre Haute. Johnny Wooden was coaching Indiana State, Mm. uh, you know, when he was growing up there. In fact, Slick told me once that he might well have gone to Indiana State if Wooden had stayed there. Uh, Wooden used to let him in the side door to watch him practice. (laughs) Wow. Well, basketball got in his blood. And, you know, I don't, you know, I think just from going to the high school games, hearing people talk about it, It got introduced to him that way. But as far as playing, I think those outdoor games in the driveway where the ex-Army or Marine guys would put up lights, you know, so they could play at night, that's what really got him going. And he was playing against older and bigger guys, and they'd knock him around and be physical, and he kind of got toughened up that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, Between that and just going through high school and having the opportunity to play organized basketball – you know, that's what got to him. I remember I asked him once, what was it that you liked so much about basketball? He said, you know, there's just something about seeing a ball go through a hoop. And, uh, you know, the, the game just got to him.
1: Mm-hmm. That's That's great because when I look at his life, I mean, I just, I love to see his passion for the game. And I mean, one of the things you said earlier, he's just so humble. And I've had a few encounters with Slick just being a fan. And I've noticed how humble he is as well. And you wouldn't think, He's uh, you know, got the resume that he has. The way he treats people, and he's kind of a shy guy. To be honest with you, um, from how I've uh, interacted with him, he's just kind of to himself. And then I walked up, introduced myself. He gave me that big old smile that he has, and uh, you know, it was just yeah. He gave me a quick autograph. He talked to me for a minute, and he went about his business. I think he was actually smoking a cigarette. In between, <laughs> the, in between the halftime, I had a Pacer game of Banker's Life. It might have been Conseco at the time. But uh, speaking of his days at IU, this is where he met his wife, Nancy. Is that correct? Yes.
2: Yeah, I wrote a lengthy article that's now on my website at markmonteith.com about just their relationship and how they met. And they were in a class together. And uh, Slick tells the story that, you know, he saw this pretty girl that he was attracted to, but he didn't know how to talk to girls. He had <laughs> never had a date in high school. You know, he was... Uh, a shy kind of backward kid. And he got her attention by when she would walk by him to go sit uh, in her seat. He'd stick his foot out in the aisle. (laughs) (laughs) His foot, you know, and she would be dressed prim and proper with a full length skirt on. And he's sitting there with a big grin in the back of the room. And she was annoyed by him, but he stayed with it, you know, and uh, asked her out and, They had the ultimate yin and yang relationship (laughs) from an upper middle class family, all prim and proper, uh, self-discipline, that kind of thing. And he was the kid who just fell off the back of the turnip truck and uh, wasn't a serious student, wasn't sophisticated, uh, but had a lot of energy and a lot of love for life, you know. So he, you know, got to know her. And the first date they ever had, uh, he had called her and uh, asked her out and said well meet me there's a basketball game you know meet me at the basketball game well he didn't tell her that he was on the team and so she went to the games first he was annoyed by you mean he's not going to come by and pick me up and walk me to the game you know I have to meet him there so she goes with a sorority sister and you know kind of in a bad mood about it And when they walk in they hear over the PA, you know, basket by Leonard, you know, that kind of thing. And she says, you mean he's on the team? You know, she had no idea. So she had to wait for him after the game and get acquainted that way. And when it was time, when he wanted to go steady with her, he just called her at the sorority house and said, uh, uh, and he just says, well, do you? And she says, what do you mean? And she says, "What well, do you? And she didn't know what he was talking about. Well, he was saying, Do you want to go steady? You know, but he had no idea how to be smooth about that. So <laughs> they really developed a mutual attraction and were great for one another. He she certainly was great for him. I used to tell him you'd be dead a long time ago if not for her, because she just kept his life in order, <laughs> kept him, you know, halfway disciplined. You know, he got away with a lot, and <laughs> you know, he had every vice known to man, but she kept him under control as best anyone could and took great care of him in his later years. So it was just a great love story.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's actually really fun to hear them both communicate. I remember them multiple times being on the radio together just talking. And, you know, as a as a younger fan, I mean, I'm only 28 years old. I really didn't get to see them in their heyday. But um, speaking of college, you know, he was the uh, MVP of IU's team his sophomore year and then his junior year. He sank those free throws in the closing seconds of the national title game. Uh to get like Indiana their second championship. But they got married pretty young. They got married right out of college. Is that correct? Yeah, right after like a week after graduation, I believe. You know, wow. right. And um
2: and then he uh, let's see, he went into the army initially for a couple mm-hmm. there was an obligatory army uh hitch he had to do then two years it wasn't wartime, so that was good, but uh yeah, they got going right away and uh you know, Slick had just so many connections with people and experiences. One thing he did, he helped uh, construct Touchdown Jesus at the Notre Dame campus because Nancy's father had a construction company who was involved in the building of that. And Slick in the summer worked on Touchdown Jesus. You know, it, it just seemed like you know, there were so many things he did or got involved with or people who he knew that this made you shake your head because he just had a connection with everything, it seemed like.
1: And then, of course, he does go into the NBA uh, with the Minneapolis and Los Angeles Lakers. Um, I think they ended up moving in the, between his time there, and he he got to play with greats like Elgin Baylor and 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 Jerry West. And I'm just I'm just curious because I never got to see him play. I don't know if you got to see him play much, but who what was he like as a, as an NBA player?
2: Yeah, he you know he was never an All Star that type of thing. He did have I think a 40 point game once or twice, and some games in the 30s. So. You know back then there were no no contract. contracts so you had to basically earn your spot every year you know and there were only like uh 9 10 teams in the league it kind of fluctuated and the rosters were maybe 10 11 deep so it yeah. was just to earn a roster spot every year his career was limited to I believe 7 seasons because he kept uh, separating his shoulder his shoulder kept coming out of joint and it just got to be too much so Uh, He became supposedly a player coach when a coach got fired by the Chicago Zephyrs. Uh, But he never really, he never did play when he became the coach. But, you know, he did have, you know, a seven-year career then was good. Uh, He did play with Baylor and uh, Jerry West. You know, he started out his career in Minneapolis, and then the team was moved to Los Angeles. And, you know, he, he really enjoyed living in L.A. in the early 60s when it was less crowded and less expensive. Um, you know, a lot of the movie stars would come to the games and so forth. And uh, he told the story of driving out to L.A. from Minneapolis in their station wagon with a broken air conditioner in the car going through the desert when it was 100 degrees, you know, with Nancy and their daughter, maybe one of the sons, and a girl they were taking out there to kind of be a housekeeper. So he had those kind of adventures in his basketball career. You know, he played back when he traveled by train to some games, Um, And then it became, you know, to where you travel by airplane. So he kind of experienced the full gamut of uh, the NBA.
1: Yeah, and it's crazy to think how much the NBA as a league has evolved (laughs) since those days. But, you know, about the ABA, because, you know, a lot of Pacer fans aren't really familiar with it. What was the big difference between the ABA and the NBA? And why were there two separate leagues?
2: Well, the um, NBA had, like I said, nine, ten teams. And some really good players were getting cut by, any, by NBA teams. You know, Jerry Harkness, for example, who became a Pacer, was first-team All-American in 1963 when Loyola won the national championship. And he got drafted by the Knicks, but got released, you know, pretty early in the first season. There were first-team All-Americans who just couldn't make an NBA team because there were so few opportunities. And, you know, the AFL had begun in the early 60s to rival the NFL, so it was working in football. And some people finally got together and formed a new league, the ABA, in 1967. And Indianapolis got one of the franchises. And uh, Slick, you know, by that time, you know, he he coached Chicago Zephyrs, and then he moved with the team to Baltimore and coached the Baltimore Bullets for a couple of years and then got let go. He was coaching a really young team that had no chance to win. And uh, so he's working for Herb Jones up in Kokomo. Uh, selling graduation supplies, class rings and the like. And uh, he didn't want to coach the Pacers when they were formed because he wasn't going to give up a steady job for this new team in a new league that might not even last one season. You know, a a league called the American Basketball League had been formed in 1961 and lasted only a season and a half. So a lot of people assumed that the ABA was going to do no better. So Slick, you know, did help with uh, the initial... Open tryouts, but he didn't have any interest in being the coach. But early the second season, the, the Pacers got off to a bad start. And the Pacers had accumulated some talent, though, that Slick saw he could coach. And he accepted the job at that point. But he didn't uh, quit his Herf Jones job for a couple of years. He did both. He would work his territory for Herf Jones, going to high schools around northern Indiana. Um during the day and in evening, uh, they would practice or have a game. You know, the Pacer practices early on were always in the evening. So he kind of eased into it that way. So the, the great thing about the ABA, and it's why I called my book on the formation of the Pacers Reborn, was that it gave so many people a second chance. You know, Slick would have spent the rest of his life up in Kokomo uh, working for Herth Jones and then retiring and probably staying up there, if not for the ABA, and so many players – uh, would never have played professional basketball if not for the ABA. Some of them had been cut by NBA teams. Some of them, like Roger Brown, had been banned by the NBA. Uh, so a lot of people uh, got a second shot at professional basketball because of the uh, ABA and Stuck was one of those.
1: And, and it's it's funny because I I love hearing stories about him as a coach and how he was to these players and how the players received him. And I think one of my favorite quotes – Comes from Mel Daniels. He was coming off that rookie year, uh, ABA Rookie of the Year. I mean, he was only a six nine in a center, which seems pretty small in today's NBA. But uh, he was an incredible rebounder. He uh, he said he was practicing jump shots from about fifteen feet out. He said, Slick walked up to him. He said, Next time you shoot from that far out, I'm gonna punch you in the nose. And he said, and that was that. It, it, it's just kind of funny because in today's NBA, all we see are centers taking shots, and back then it was a totally different game. And I don't think you hear many coaches today tell a player they're going to punch him in the nose. But yeah. how how did he just be able to connect with these guys, you know, during this time, you know, this time and, and get them all to play together? Yeah, it's just
2: a function of his personality. You either have it or you don't. Uh, it's nothing you can learn. You can't go to a coaching clinic and learn how to relate to your players that way. Slick by nature. Was a tough guy. Guy wasn't afraid to fight. But he was also a nice guy, a good-hearted guy. That's just who he was genetically, I guess. And that served him very well as a coach. And he did change the culture of the Pacers team. Um, He, uh, you know, like I said, he took over like nine games into the second season. They were two and seven when he started. And um, one of the things I was able to detail in my book is how he went about changing that culture because his initial practices – which uh, his first practice as Pacer coach was at Rebuff High School in the evening. And a couple of reporters were there and wrote about, you know, how it went. And, you know, he, he did tell Mel, you know, what are you, a forward or a center? You know, and Mel actually had been a forward when he was in Minneapolis as a rookie, but he was a center for the Pacers. So he made Mel get closer to the basket. He challenged Neto to be more physical. All, all these things. He just really challenged the players. Yeah. they responded, it took a while. It's not like they became a really good team right away um, after he took over. It took a while for everybody to adjust, but eventually they got it going and they wound up playing for the ABA championship uh, his first year there, that 1968-69 season lost to the Oakland Oaks, which really uh, was a better team. But um, he turned that team around. You know, reporters had a lot of access that day, so they might be on the bus with the team after a game going back to the hotel. And, and some, some of the times they wrote about what Slick was saying to the guys on the bus and telling them, you know, you guys, you know, you guys are too spoiled. You know, you think you have a tough, you should meet this guy, that type of thing. And um, he just made those guys appreciate what they had. He challenged them physically. He wasn't afraid of them, but if they're having a tough time, he could throw an arm around them, talk them, he gave him confidence. You know, he yeah. gave his players confidence by the way he talked about them in the media. You know, he didn't rip his players in the media. He might, he'd do it in a locker room, <laughs> throwing stuff, yelling at them, but he wouldn't do it in the media publicly. Uh, and he would give them confidence by the, a lot of the things he said in the media. And, uh, you know, he would say things like when they're on the road, you know, walk out there like you own the damn place. That type <laughs> of thing. You know, players picked up on that. And That's what made them great. Now, they had great talent, and it always starts with talent. But he gave them those extra intangible qualities of having some fire and also having confidence that uh, enabled them to win three championships.
1: And I want to ask this because I feel like I've heard this before, but he was a player's coach, but he was really good with X's and O's as well. But was he like a father figure to some of these guys on the team?
2: Yeah, he was. A couple in particular, Roger Brown, uh, who really had no relationship with his father. Roger grew up in Brooklyn and his dad was out of the picture. His dad was a vaudeville guy, from what I'm told, like a tap dancer or something. And he was never around. You know, Roger had uncles and so forth. But, um, you know, he didn't trust authority because he'd been banned unfairly from college and the NBA. Uh, and then Bob Netto, like he too, I would say. Netto,
0: Netto's father was a Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
2: Surgeon made all kinds of money, but was a workaholic.
0: So was never
2: around much and didn't have much influence on uh, Neto's life growing up. So I would say for Roger Brown and Bob Netto in particular, uh slick was a father figure uh Go ahead. a couple other players that uh, he maybe should have made a better attempt to be a father figure for but he can't you know he can't hold them responsible for everything or everybody you know guys like billy keller came from a solid home he didn't
1: need that or uh, you know the economy is made up of real people doing real stuff and it affects everything which you obviously know since you're a real person doing real stuff legends whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history relive their decade of dominance in the new showtime sports documentary the kings a four-part series premiering sunday june 6th only on showtime
2: you know didn't need a father figure but uh, for a couple guys particularly those two he was indeed a father figure
1: and you know it's it's just a remarkable thing to see a guy be able to do that as a coach. And I just – you know, it's just such a different era that it's so interesting to go back and just see and hear stories about him and how connected that team was because mean, came on. The radio today was talking about him and their conversations they had. And I know some of the guys still talk with one another and, and are still really good friends to this day. So it just goes to show how close that team was. So they won ABA championships in 70, 72, and 73 – what was it like, you know, talking to those guys about those championship runs?
2: Well, it was, yeah, it was a great time in their lives, for sure. I mean, they took the city by storm. I Maybe the best analogy I can come up with is that they were kind of to Indianapolis, what the Beatles were to the world, you know, just wow. a sensation. Uh, the Coliseum at the fairgrounds was a place where all elements of the city would go to a game. You know, black, white, rich, poor, young, old. You know, Pacer fans, you know, covered the gamut, and uh, they really brought the city together. And there was so much excitement in those games. You know, so many great moments out there. It's unfortunate that they won all three titles on the road, but they still had a lot of great games at the Coliseum, and um, they just they just connected. You know, the uh, the players stayed here in the off seasons, became part of the community. Slick had a summer camp for a while in Batesville, where you know, not just for basketball, but for horse riding and swimming and various things. And the players would participate in that, kind of be counselors or make appearances, that kind of thing. Um, so it was like a year-round deal. You know, it's kind of a year-round connection between the team and the city. And, you know, you'll find a lot of people, myself included. You know, I was 12 years old when the Pacers first played, and I went to games that first year. And, uh, you know, I just remember the feeling the city had. For that team. And when they got to the ABA finals for the first time, or when they won the championship for the first time in 1970, uh, some of the games were on national TV. CBS with Don Cricky came in and were doing games. And I can remember what a big deal it was to have a Pacer game on national TV. It just made you feel like you were in a big time place finally. You know, before the Pacers got here, the biggest show in town was Butler basketball, and they were sometimes good and sometimes not. But uh, when the Pacers came, it brought the whole city together, not just fans of one school. And when they got a national profile, it just made everybody feel like they're in kind of a big time place, you know. And uh, that's why it was so exciting for everybody.
1: Yeah. And so then, then the merger happens from the ABA to the NBA, I believe, in 1976. Mm-hmm. And the Pacers were one of four of the six teams that were selected to join the NBA And it was rough going there for the Pacers once they merged into the NBA. Can you kind of talk us through some of those struggles and uh, how Slick was a part of that?
2: Yeah, when the Pacers uh, did join the NBA, they weren't a good team even then. The the players who had won championships for them had gotten old and moved on, so they're in a rebuilding mode anyway. Um, But the the two leagues did come together, and four ABA teams were allowed in It took $3.2 million to get in, and there's a a guy named Bill Eason who put that money forward. And, I mean, the ABA teams were stripped of their first-round draft pick for that first year. I mean, the NBA just hammered them just because they were able to. The ABA was coming apart, and they were desperate. So, you know, Slick had to coach teams that just weren't equipped to win, but certainly the city was excited, number one, still to have the Pacers, and number two, to be in the NBA. As much as people love the ABA, uh, it was a big deal to get into the NBA and have those players coming through town. Uh, Guys people had seen on television but never seen play in person before. So, you know, Splick's early coaching or his later coaching years, his last five seasons, um, the Pacers had a losing record each one. And it's not that he stopped trying or whatever, it's just that uh, the talent wasn't there And the ownership didn't have the money to maintain or bring in high level of talent. So uh, they struggled, but he stayed with it. And the city was really grateful, I would say, to still have a team and to be in the NBA. As the years went on and they continued to struggle, you know, certainly fan interest dropped off. Um, You know, they used to draw the curtains around the upper level of Market Square Arena because nobody was sitting up there. Pretty sad scene, but still, the franchise managed to stay alive.
1: And you go back to that telethon on July 3rd, 1977. Nancy and Slickliner pull off an incredible telethon to keep the creditors away and keep the Pacers in Indianapolis. How would this whole entire franchise look now? And how would this city look if they were unable to pull off that telethon?
2: Yeah, uh, it's certainly a good question. It may not exist. You know, you could legitimately argue that the franchise wouldn't be here today. Yeah. Um, but they did put that thing together. Really, Nancy deserves most of the credit for that. She organized that thing in about 10 days or two weeks. And the whole city came together. The convention center donated space for it. Uh, Arby's donated food for everybody working there. Um, they asked people just to come in and perform like, cause it went, you know, 24 hours. Uh, day and night, so like three in the morning, you could turn on the TV and watch somebody doing something, playing a guitar, or whatever. I know a guy from my high school who who did it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a shame there's no uh, you know film of this, but and the local TV stations. There were four local TV stations, and I forget which one was kind of the flagship and carried the whole thing, but the others would check in from time to time. So you would have this telephone telethon on all four channels at various points during uh, the telephone while it was going on and that was kind of the community effort that everybody put forth to save the franchise and and it worked out obviously and certainly if the Pacers had not had that success in the ABA and had not won those championships and if slick was not such a beloved figure people would never rallied for that because the Pacers were not a good team at the time of the telephone so uh, the previous success is what enabled that thing to come off and you know kids were breaking open piggy banks and taking coins downtown to donate to it they're counting coins on the floor i mean it was really a bizarre episode but it's historic now and it was a uh,
1: you know great credit to the city to come together like that unbelievably uh an unbelievable story i i, I still get chills when i hear that and i think to myself you know a lot of play, people look at the greatest pacer of all time and they say it's Reggie Miller and they say, you know, it might be somebody from the ABA days, McGinnis, Brown, uh, Daniels, like all these guys that have been really talented players. But I I still, it's hard for me to look back and not say that the Leonards, Nancy and Slick Leonard, aren't the greatest pacers of all time just because of their impact on building this franchise and sustaining it through the toughest years that it ever experienced.
2: I think so, certainly that argument could be made and you know slick just um covered the whole history of the franchise you know he was there helping run the open tryouts before the Pacers had ever played a game in 1967 and he was there in the NBA finals in 2000 you know he called all those reggie miller three point shots um and he he was part of the broadcast sunday night right i mean he still was on the radio not going to games but from home yeah going on pregame with Mark Boyle, halftime after the game. So right up to this moment, right up, you know, until this morning, he's been a part of the Pacer franchise. And that's just a remarkable thing. I think there was one year when he was out, you know, he got let go as the coach in 1980 um, and he was away from it for about a year, but then they brought him back to be part of the television broadcast team. And, you know, he wasn't bitter. He didn't say, no, I'm not going to do that kind of thing. Uh, he did, it. and Nancy came back with him. Nancy, every game Slick went to, Nancy went to. Sat in the front row, uh, usually kept score. I got pictures of her sitting in the front row, keeping score at Pacer games back at the Coliseum. Um, so they were certainly a team and certainly had a huge impact. I mean, Nancy did things like uh, organize the pacemates, get that started, and have practices in the basement at their house and pick the uniforms. I mean, she had a lot of influence too. Mm-hmm. It's more than the players would have wanted, I think. <laughs> but, uh, Betsy was certainly a part of it, and they were a great team, and they kept this thing running through the uh, downturns, and they got to enjoy the better years, too. You know, I know how badly Slick wanted the Pacers to win an NBA championship someday, but they still had a lot of great moments that he was a part of, you know, sitting there courtside as a broadcaster.
1: When did he transition from TV to radio? It was after Mark
2: Boyle came on. Uh, I know Mark's first season was the same as Reggie Miller's rookie season, so that would be uh, 87, 88 season. So Mm -hmm. I don't think Slick, though, became part of the radio team full-time until the early 90s because Mark's first partner was Clark Kellogg. But uh, I think, you know, not all the games were televised back then. So I think it was better way for Slick to be involved with every game by being on the radio because every game was on the radio. So it was at some point in the early 90s, maybe around 93, that he and Mark became a radio team.
1: Do you recall when he uh, came up with the term Boom Baby?
2: Yes. Uh, The genesis of Boom Baby goes back to when he was coaching Uh, the the game in Denver in the ABA um, and uh, they had uh, a game-winning possession coming up. There was a timeout They needed a hit score to win the game. and It wound up with Billy Keller hitting a three-pointer from the left corner to win the game. And Slick jumped up and threw out his fists and yelled, boom, baby. (laughs) You have to understand that Slick, uh, you know, the way he talked back then, it was baby this, baby that. Come on, baby. Let's go, baby. Good job, baby. One year, the Pacer uh, motto for the season on the billboards and so forth was uh, baby, we're due." So, excuse me, um, that's just how he talks. So it just kind of came out of his mouth when Billy Keller hit that three-point shot to win the game. Boom, baby. And it stuck, apparently. So when – I don't know that if he ever ever said it again as a coach, but when he became
1: a broadcaster, that had stuck in his mind and he started throwing that out for every three-point shot. And it stuck, and it was something that Pacer fans look forward to. I think it was fun. I think it might have been earlier this year – where uh Boyle set him up for a call, and he just kind of smiled and forgot what was going on, and he just kind of jokingly kept urging him. he was like, "Oh, boom, baby, you know he had forgotten about it yeah he had been you yeah. have been doing it so long, and I think any Pacer fan that loves Reggie Miller and that remembers those days, I mean attaching Reggie Miller to that boom baby it's like a you know perfect pairing because imagining all those Reggie moments without hearing the boom baby just kind of makes it feel less lackluster. It feels lackluster. doesn't feel like it's that like triumphant call that we're always used to hearing. And I just, I feel like the boom baby is part of Reggie Miller in his career just because of the three point shots that he hit. And then mm-hmm. it obviously carried on. I mean, we remember the bad days when he would still knock him out of the park. I think one of my favorite ones was he was just so honest on the broadcast too. Uh, there was a game. I forget what team Jason Terry was on, was on was on at the time, but he called him he called him Mickey Mouse. <laughs> <And> he, <laughs> he was arguing he was arguing with the referee, and he said, "Quit arguing with the referees." You know, Mickey Mouse play basketball, and that's one thing I loved about him. He just he was so knowledgeable of the game, but he didn't rub it in your face. And right. very humble, very laid back guy. And then, of course, the later years of his broadcasting, we all know the scary thing that happened the heart attack. Now, he had, he had two massive heart attacks, didn't he?
2: Yeah, he did. He had one in Portland and one in New York. Uh, yeah. The one in New York, I think, was the worst one. And they were on the team bus after a game at Madison Square Garden. They had beaten the Knicks. And uh, this is like 2011, I think, something like that. And uh, he told me later, you know, I wasn't at that game or even around the team much at that point. But um, he's sitting next to Quinn Buckner on the team bus ready to leave Madison Square Garden. And he said to Quinn, hey, check on your phone there. Let's Who's winning the Masters? It was on a Sunday. And uh, as Quinn was doing that, Slick collapsed. He was out. And they called in the medics and they tried to jolt him back to life to get his heart going again. They tried three times and failed. And they gave up. They said, he's gone. We can't save him. And Carl Eaton, uh, assistant trainer, said, no, he's tough. Do it again. Keep doing it. And they revived him on the fourth attempt. <laughs> so, um, you know that. <laughs> My goodness, Bad boy. You know there, there was always an adventure. There's always something going on, and, and, and these like, the last few years were tough. You know for him, certainly uh, he had the heart issues. He was on blood thinners. I remember a game last season before the pandemic. You know he was up. I used to always sit up in the radio broadcast area, and uh, there was a game when he couldn't get his nose to stop bleeding. And uh, he kind of just dropped out of the broadcast. He wasn't participating. He was trying to get his nose to stop bleeding. And I think Boyle must have sent word to somebody. And Darnell Hillman came up and said, Slick, let's just go home. Let's get Nancy. You guys just go home. You take care of that. And Slick said, no, 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 no. I'm staying. I'm staying. And finally, Rick Hughes had to go up and kind of order Slick to go home. You know, they didn't want anything bad to happen, you know, medically. And, you know, he wasn't going to be able to do much with the broadcast if his nose is bleeding, so he had things like that happening. You know, he wasn't well. You know, I was at his house two Saturdays ago and he was in good shape, but he had had uh, an aortic aneurysm, had a new procedure performed that turned out fine, and he had been in the hospital as well. Um, Urinary tract infection, it was just always something. He'd be in the hospital for a few days and come back and be okay, but he was always there mentally, you know, and I, I would imagine that even this morning before he went to sleep, uh, he was fine. And he always took naps. He often slept during the day. And, you know, Nancy went down to wake him up this morning, and he couldn't wake up. But it's very fortunate that toward at the very end, you know, he wasn't suffering. Uh, he was sharp mentally, and yeah. he was at home, and, you know, and he passed away in his sleep. So that's certainly a blessing.
1: Yeah, that's, that's definitely a blessing to see him pass peacefully. Um, you, you said you were there. I'm just curious because obviously it's we're not gonna hear much from Nancy probably during these times, but how how is Nancy doing right now?
2: Yeah, I don't know. I have not yet talked to anyone who's talked with her. I didn't want to contact her because she has, you know, so many close friends and you know, she has five yeah. friends and you know, I don't want to, you know, interfere at this point. But um, I'm sure she's okay because she's a strong woman and she knew this day was coming. I mean, given all the health issues Slick had had over the years. Uh, it Certainly, honestly doesn't come as a surprise. It's a shock in a way, but it's also not a surprise. So I'm sure she was prepared for it uh, mentally. Her health is good, best I could tell. You know, when I've been there, been with her, she seems fine. She's got bloodlines, her mom and aunts and so forth. Many of them have lived to 100, 103, that kind of thing. So um, she's about the same age she is, so. You know, she can be with us for a while, but um, I think she'll be okay. You know, what it's amazing. You know, they they built a house in Carmel in 1970, a five-bedroom house. It moved down here from Kokomo and lived there until just a couple or three years ago. And you would think a couple in their 80s having health issues would move into a senior community, right? You know, <laughs> right, right. care of form and everything. And no, they moved into another five-bedroom house. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the only advantage, the reason they moved was that the floor plan was such that he could do, he could stay on one floor. You know, the kitchen, the living room, the dining room was all on one floor. Um, and he could sleep in his reclining sofa. And then they put an elevator in the house so he could go down into the basement they put together with all his memorabilia and photos and everything. So, wow. but, but who do you know? in their 80s. With the health issues they've had, who moves into a five-bedroom house? But that was just the kind of spirit that the Leonard's had.
1: No, and that's that's awesome because I just it's it just says a lot about who they are as people. Just that little story right there. But I I want to close it out with two things. Number one, I'm sure they'll probably wear some kind of patch. I don't know if it'll be next year, the rest of this year. I haven't really heard anything. But do you think they ought to build a statue outside of uh, Bankers Life Field House with a uh, of Slick Leonard?
2: Yeah, I I would guess they'll wear a patch the rest of this season, although there's not much left, but that's usually how it works. And um, uh, yeah, I I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if a statue is coming. I appreciate the dilemma franchises or cities have when it comes to things like statues and retired jersey numbers and halls of fame and so forth, because it opens up a can of worms and somebody's bound to say, what about this guy? you know, a lot of Pacer fans would vote for Reggie Miller first, right, for a statue, Mm -hmm. And you could argue for the Simons, and you could argue for other Hall of Fame players. Uh, But I think, you know, given the circumstances we have now, I wouldn't be at all surprised if something comes together for Slick. You know, it'll be interesting. Are they going to put him in a leisure suit with a comb over, you know, like he had in the 70s, or in a more modern uh, appearance? I don't know. But wouldn't be at all surprised if it happens, you know, in front of Bankers Field Fieldhouse. So many teams now are building statues. I'm guessing the technology to do it must have become easier because it seems like just about every team has statues going up now. So mm-hmm. certainly if the people were to decide to do that,
1: uh, Slick Leonard would be a good choice for the first one. I know we have a John Wooden statue downtown. I just think that it'd be great to add Slick to that just for what he doesn't just means for this entire city, not just the Pacers, but the entire city. So, last thing, Mark, as we wrap this up, what would you just how would you describe Slick Leonard? I mean, if fans are unfamiliar with him as much as, you know, some of the older fans might be and they're still trying to figure out, like, hey, we know him from his radio calls as the guy that's been the color commentator with Mark Boyle, how would you best describe Slick Leonard for fans to kind of just remember him by?
2: Uh, common man, everyday guy, down to earth guy. You know that from your meeting with him, right? You know, very approval, no ego issues. I don't like to make generalizations about a, a group of people or a state or a city or anything, but I would say that people in Indiana uh, like uh, people without huge egos. You know, don't like the the, the uh, Hollywood types or the like the ones who really like to draw a lot of attention to themselves. Uh, maybe as a performer, maybe as like Reggie Miller as a player, but not in everyday life and slick in everyday life was as down to earth as it comes an easy guy to become friends with uh, an easy guy to communicate with a good hearted guy. Uh, and he related to every fan Man, I mean you saw him out there before halftime and after games. He's out there in the lobby or on the smoker's porch (laughs) and uh, greeting fans or any... I took fans to go see him. You know, there might be a fan in from Japan who wanted to meet Slick Leonard, so I'd walk him over there and introduce him. Um, So that's really who he was. Somebody that all fans could relate to. Somebody who had great success and, you know, might have been able to get away with having a big ego, but didn't. I mean, Slick and Nancy Leonard... You know, they had a, a listed phone number back in the day. You know, when, when people had landlines and you got a phone book to look up a phone number, they were in the phone book when he was coaching the Pacers. So that wow. sums it up for you, you know, what kind of people they were. They didn't mind people finding him, reaching out to him, uh, And uh, I think that's really, in my mind, how he goes down. It's just uh, an everyday guy who had had great success but never thought he was too good for anybody.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. I, I completely agree with the encounters I had with him. He is just a down-to-earth person. So, Mark, if there's fans that want to hear more than just our conversation about Slick Leonard, find out more about him. Did you have something on your website where you had a conversation with him? You know, you talk about your book. Where are some areas that people can find out more about Slick Leonard and who he was as a person?
2: Yeah, you can go to markmontieth.com, M-O-N-T-I-E-T-H.com. I've got all my one-on-one Uh, episodes there. So I did a double episode with Slick. Just went to his house one day. We sat in his living room and recorded it. And he told all the stories. Uh, That was done like in 2009, I want to say. But still, he tells all the stories, you know, coming up in Indiana and and coaching the Pacers and so forth. Um, Also, I've I've written a lot about him when he went into the Hall of Fame. I wrote about him. I wrote a really lengthy story once about his relationship with Nancy. You know, that is also at my website, markmonteith.com. So there's a lot of material there. And there's also a lot of episodes with former ABA Pacer players. And certainly they talked about Slick as well. So I think anybody wanting to learn more about Slick Leonard could uh, learn a lot just by going to the website.
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for coming on to do a little reflection of the life of Slick Leonard. I know that he will be missed, but we will celebrate the 88 years that he gave us on this earth. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Alex. I uh, enjoyed being with you. Thank you, Mark. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.
2: This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on.